0: And we are getting back to Mark today. We've been walking through Mark from uh, the very beginning of the book and just kind of walking through verse by verse. And we have come now to sort of a real pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. It's the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And you know, when you read the Gospels, a, a big chunks of the Gospels take place during Passion Week. Half of the Gospel of John and a third of the Gospel of Mark take place during Passion Week, the week that leads up to the cross and the resurrection. So what happens this week in Jerusalem is crucial to understanding who Jesus is and why he came. And so today and for the remainder of our study in Mark, we are going to be in the city of, of Jerusalem with Jesus. And today, he enters the city. And so we're talking about welcoming the king. So let's look at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11. The Bible says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pray that as we approach this text, and we see the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king, we pray that we would welcome him as our king, with all that that means, all that that entails. And we pray that you would help us to see what that means, afresh and anew, over the next few minutes. We ask it in his name. Amen. In 49 B.C., when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River in northern Italy with his troops, he knew what that meant. He, He knew that he was leading his troops past beyond the point of no return. And he knew that war was going to be inevitable. And it's said that as Julius Caesar's troops were, were crossing the, the shallow waters of the Rubicon, that he, he uttered a, a Latin phrase, Alia iacta est, the die is cast. And As Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, it's that kind of moment. It's really the moment where all of Mark has been pointed to to this point. One of Mark's favorite phrases is, on the way. And we've been seeing that for several chapters now, that Jesus and his disciples were on the way. On the way to where? On the way to Jerusalem. It's all been leading to this moment. When we were last in Mark, before we broke for our our Christmas series, At the end of chapter 10, Jesus was in Jericho. And you remember he he healed the the blind man there in, in, in Jericho. And then he took the Jericho road to Jerusalem. It's the same road that pilgrims today take. If you visit Israel you're very likely to take this, this same road. And, and it goes straight uphill. Jer- Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. And so you're going straight uphill. And when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be on top of the Mount of Olives. And you're going to be looking down at Jerusalem from the east. And I don't care how many times you've done this, it never gets old. It's just exhilarating as you, you look down from the top of the Mount of Olives at the city of Jerusalem. But imagine how the disciples felt. Because, see, they had come to believe by this point that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the King. And they believed that, that Jesus was, was entering Jerusalem to inaugurate His kingdom. And they were right that Jesus is the king, but they had not yet grasped that his kingdom was going to involve a bloody cross. They were right that Jesus was coming in as king, but they, they could not imagine that part of his mission was going to involve a crucifixion. One writer, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, has said, you know, they were, they were looking for a singer who was going to sing the song that they had been humming all of these years. Uh, but, but God was a composer who was coming with a whole new sheet of music. They were looking for a builder who was going to build their, their, their dream home, the home that they wanted. But, but see, God was, is an architect. And he was going to give them the design that they really needed and that we really need. And that involves a cross. And that involves resurrection. But on this day, Jesus enters the city as king. What does it mean to welcome the king? Let's talk first of all about the king's preparation. So verse 1 tells us that when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethany and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives, which lies just east of the city of Jerusalem, is loaded with prophetic significance. The Bible tells us that when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., that the, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that the glory of God left the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and came to rest on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel 11.23 says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. And just as the glory of God came to rest on the Mount of Olives, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes again, that His feet are going to rest on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 says that on that day, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on this day, even the animal that Jesus rides on, is loaded with prophetic significance. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. And the, and the word colt here is sort of a neutral term that can mean either a young horse or a donkey. But we know from the Gospel of Matthew that it was a donkey. And we know that that donkey again was the fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy in Zechariah was written over 500 years before Jesus enters Jerusalem on this day. But it tells us that He would come in mounted on a donkey, and it also tells us about His character, the character of this King. In contrast to all of the unrighteous kings that we see in the Old Testament and that we've seen throughout world history, this King will be righteous. And this King will possess what no other king possesses, because he has salvation, and he brings salvation. And in contrast to pompous, arrogant kings, Jesus is a humble king, and he comes in mounted on a humble animal, not a war horse, but a young donkey, humble and mounted on a donkey. It's interesting. The the word here for uh, humble can also be translated as afflicted, afflicted, as it is in another prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53. The Bible says there of Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. You see, what this crowd can't possibly imagine, what even His disciples did not imagine as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this day, is that Jesus, before the end of the week, is going to be afflicted with their sins and our sins. He's going to bear them. He is going to be afflicted with all of our sins. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities so that we can receive healing and peace and rest. Jesus is going to be the suffering servant that Isaiah is talking about in this prophecy. Jesus gives us the invitation in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, when you think about it, all of us want to be lightly governed by strength. It's just built into us. I mean, from the time we were little kids, we want our dads, for instance, to be super strong, and we want our dads to be able to do everything and be strong and protect us, but at the same time, we want dads who are tender and humble and gentle. We want police officers, you know, who can protect us from those who would do us harm. But at the same time, we want police officers to be people who can take a little lost kid by the hand and, and gently lead them home. You know, we want our military to be strong, super strong, to secure uh, peace. But we don't want that strength turned in on us. We want to be lightly governed by strength. We want we to want, we be governed by strength, but we want that Strength to be strong enough to be gentle. And the reason that we want that is because that's exactly how God governs us. You know, one day, one day Jesus is coming again, and he's going to rule and reign as king. Every, peace, peace is going to reign at that point in our broken world. Everything that's broken is going to be fixed. And look at, what he's, look at his government's. Isaiah 9 and and, and verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One day Jesus is coming again to rule and to reign as King. And earthly kings and kingdoms... We'll all pass away. Jesus is going to reign as king. The government's going to be on his shoulder. And he comes bringing peace. He comes bringing rest. But right here, right now, you can put your life under the reign of this king. The king's preparation. Second, we, we see the king's entry. What happens is Jesus enters the city. Verse 8, it says, Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So the spreading of the cloaks on the road was something that, that they would do when royalty was approaching For instance, in the Old Testament, on the day that King Jehu was inaugurated, 2 Kings 9 tells us that in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so when royalty would approach, the people would take off their cloak, their garment, and they would put it on the ground, sort of like a a red carpet effect as the king came in. So, So clearly, they are understanding that Jesus is royalty, that this is a royal entry. And in a similar way, they would cut. Branches, usually palm branches, and some of them would, would put them down, others would take them and, and, and wave them. 200 years before, when Judas Maccabeus came into Jerusalem after defeating the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, the people had done the same thing. They had waved palm branches as royalty came near. And Judas Maccabeus established a dynasty that would last for a hundred years, but he was gone. And Jehu was gone. These kings were gone. But this king is coming into Jerusalem to establish a kingdom that will last forever. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They are identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The promise that God had made to David. That one of his descendants would sit on the throne and be the Messiah. Let's look at that Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, God there says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, 2 Samuel 7 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the immediate fulfillment of that promise was in David's son Solomon. But the ultimate fulfillment of that Davidic covenant cannot be Solomon. He's talking here about a forever king, a forever kingdom. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah coming to to reign and You know, when we were looking at the Gospel of Luke uh, in preparation for Christmas um, in December, we saw how careful Luke was to to show this Davidic connection to Jesus. You remember in in Luke chapter 1, we saw it there. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph Of the house of David. And then in Luke 2, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem in the city of David. He comes from the lineage of David. And so the people are crying out here in verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus is the Messiah coming from the house of David. That they had right. (laughs) But see, they they wanted Jesus to conform to their expectation of what the Messiah should be and do, and their expectation was was loaded with uh, their own dream, not God's dream. See, it was their dream that the Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem and kick out their the Romans and establish uh, sort of a, a political kingdom and restore Israel's national glory. Their dream did not involve a bloody cross where Jesus was going to be nailed to a Roman cross. That, that is not a part of their plan. And see, they, they want the Messiah to, 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 to fit into their idea of who he should, should be. They wanted him to sort of safely fit into the, the contours of Messiahship that they had created in their own minds. But Jesus is not safe. <laughs> you know, it's appropriate in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that, that he has the, the Aslan, the lion, to represent Jesus. Revelation tells us that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And a lion is notoriously untamable. It's not a domesticated pet. And in one famous passage from The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in in a conversation between Mr. Beaver and, and Susan, the statement is made, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And you see, the people in our culture today are no different than the people in Jerusalem that day. We want a God who will safely sit into who we want him to be people in our culture want they want they want a god who is going to be there for them when they get into trouble when they're in crisis but not a god who's going to be king who's going to insist on running every aspect of their lives you know people in our culture want a god who is going to help them fulfill their dreams their dreams our dreams not necessarily us fitting into his dream. And we betray this sometimes even in the language that we use in our culture. Sometimes people will say, well, you know what? Well, Jesus is a big part of my life. Jesus isn't interested in being a big part of your life. Jesus isn't interested in having a role in your play, even if it's a big role. He gets to direct the play. <laughs> And you know what? Life and eternity work out a whole lot better when we let Jesus call the shots. When we let Jesus direct the play. When we let Jesus be king. Let's look thirdly at the king's tears. The king's tears. The gospel of of, of Luke tells us that at this moment, As the people are rejoicing that Jesus is weeping. And Luke tells us why he was weeping. Luke 19 and verses 41 and following, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace who sees a child making terrible choices, self-destructive choices. And it's it's breaking your heart because you you, you know what those choices are going to lead to. And Jesus knows that by the end of this week that he's going to be rejected, rejected that they're going to reject the message and the way that he is bringing. And he knows what that rejection will mean. It's going to ultimately mean war and with Rome. And, and, and these words that Jesus speaks were fulfilled to a T. Just less than 40 years later in, in 70 A.D., And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us what happened in 70 A.D. to the city of Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that Caesar ordered the whole city and temple to be razed to the ground. The wall encompassing the city was so completely level to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Such was the end to which the frenzy of revolutionaries brought jerusalem you see in rejecting the revolution of love and peace that jesus was bringing they're going to reject that and have their own revolution which is going to be armed conflict with rome and jesus knows this is going to end in destruction it's going to end in death and it's tearing his heart out because he loves these people Josephus tells us more about that destruction, about that death. He says, when Titus, who was the Roman general, when Titus, going his rounds, beheld these valleys, choked with dead, he groaned and raising his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. In other words, I didn't want to have to kill all these people. I wanted them to surrender and they refuse to surrender. But their problem did not begin with their refusal to surrender to Titus. Their problem begins with their refusal to surrender to Jesus and submit to him, to his gentle, loving, peaceful reign. And that's where our problems in life begin as well. When we refuse the reign of Jesus and choose our own way. What does God see in your future? Does God see your walls and your towers torn down? When God looks at your future, does He see a lot of self-inflicted pain and heartache because you insisted on calling the shots? Because you insisted on climbing on the throne and being king of your own life? When God looks at your future, does He see an eternal separation from the King? Because you refuse to bow the knee and accept Christ as your King. Friend, there's another way. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid we can receive the peace. Peace with God that Jesus offers and that only He offers because only He took the sins upon Himself that separate us from a holy God who hates sin. Only Jesus can give us this peace with God. Only a relationship with Christ can give us the peace of God which passes all understanding. But that begins with, with putting our lives under the reign of the Prince of Peace. Here verse 11 is tantalizing. Mark says that, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve Mark is uh, really masterful here uh, in his writings, as we've seen many times in this gospel. And, and here in verse 11, it's kind of like a, it's like a, a movie <laughs> where it's setting, it's setting things up for the sequel, and it's just sort of masterfully leaving you hanging in anticipation of what's going to happen next. But Mark's doing more here in verse 11 than sort of making us ask, what's going to happen next in Jerusalem? It's meant for, to cause us to ask, what's going to happen next with me? What's going to happen next with you? What are you going to do with this king. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to welcome the king. To welcome him not in sort of a, the king that fits our own description, our own plan, our own dream. But Lord, may we place our reign our, our lives under the reign of King Jesus. All of all of life, the whole of life. Give us the grace to to place our lives under under the reign of the Prince of Peace, the only one who can bring peace, the only one who can bring rest, the only one who possesses and can bring salvation to us. Forgive us for the times. When we try to try to call the shots, help us to let go of the controls and let Jesus reign in every area. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with him, you say, I want to place my life under the reign of the King. I want to welcome him into my life we would love to talk with you and pray with you more about that before you leave uh, today and as others stand and sing I'm going to be right here at the front share with me what God's doing in your life today if you're here today and you say we want to yoke our lives uh, to the, the, the life of the corporate life of this church we would love just to welcome you and to receive you today as we stand and sing